0: Wow, here we are at the beginning of our trip here in the middle of Israel. We're actually in the middle of our first day. We've already seen a bunch of things leading up to it. We're wrapping up our our first day here in the land of Israel. But this particular site is unlike any other, even if it's just for one single reason. It's been incredible so far, but not like right now. Because right now, at this very moment, I'm excited to welcome our whole church over in Santa Barbara. They're with us right now. They're going to be studying along with us through uh, this book of the Bible. And we're so excited to have you with us, even just for like 30 minutes or 40 or 50 or 60 or however the Spirit leads. Uh, we really miss you. We love you. And we're just so excited to include you in what the Lord has been showing us um, for for those of you back home, uh, and obviously the rest of you that are here, just wanted to give you a little context before we start about where we are, why we are, and where we're in the middle of. Uh, we're in the northern part of Israel right now. On the edge, if you were to look at a map, just a, a basic map of the area of Israel, the first things that you would probably see is a, 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 a line of small bodies of water, these lakes, these, uh, the seas. You'd see the Dead Sea see the Jordan River, you'd see the Galilean Sea, and those would just be lined up. If you're looking at a map, it would be over on the right, and then on the far left, you'll see a large body of water, the ocean. That's a Mediterranean Sea. So just to give you an idea of where we are right now, We're right in the middle of those two things, a little closer to the Mediterranean Sea, and we are right now on top of a large mountainous terrain with some spectacular views. Uh, If you were to, if you were looking over in this general direction, you might see the uh, the plains of Megiddo. If you were to look off in this direction, you'd see the Jezreel Valley. So we're uh, right now looking down on those areas from about eighteen hundred feet high. That's where we are right now, on a place called Mount Carmel, right? Well, on a place called Mount Carmel, if you are in Santa Barbara right now, you might recognize Mount Carmel as the monastery, the Episcopalian monastery behind the mission. Or you might say, oh, that sounds like Elijah. And if you were the first one, you're Right. If you're the second one, you're right. We are right now on top of a mountain that is known for uh, an Old Testament scene as the mount where Elijah challenged 400 prophets of Baal in a scene of epic proportions. And it's that scene that I want to take you to right now. And so, if you would, turn with me to 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. We're going to read a large chunk of chapter 18, not the whole thing, but we'll start in... Uh, verse verse 17. And as we go through it, I'll just read little by little. We'll make our way through 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. As you're turning there, just a little context about what's happening because I'm cutting it a a, a little short. We're kind of jumping into a story. There's going to be two people that confront each other in a bit of a tiff, a little argument. One of them is Ahab, The other is Elijah. The things that you need to know about both of these guys is Ahab is the current in this time. He's the current king of the northern part of Israel. Israel has had a bad spree of kings and Ahab is the worst, okay? So God has called these kings to rule His people, to shepherd them rightly in the law of God, and they have gone astray. They've disobeyed the law of God and Ahab is the pinnacle of that disobedience. On the other hand, you have Elijah. Elijah is a prophet. In the Old Testament, the prophets of God were the chosen mouthpiece. Those people who were called by God to speak directly to God's people, everything that they said, every syllable, every adjective, every conjunction that came out of their mouths when God was speaking was the word of the living God. It ended up getting recorded in what we have now as the Bible in the Old Testament, Later, the New Testament with the apostles, same kind of idea. This was God's way of speaking to His people, and it was as binding as God speaking uh, uh, Himself, as if He was speaking out loud. And He was speaking to the prophets, to His people. And so now you have a little confrontation happening. You have the confrontation between a guy who's been chosen to lead Israel, but who's largely gone astray, so he's disobedient. And you have this chosen mouthpiece who's confronting a disobedient Israel. And so that's a scene we're we're jumping into right now. A scene between God's Word and God's people who have gone astray. That's really the essence of this story. God calling His people back from a place of disobedience. Um. And so this is a... We're right now in verse 17 going to jump into the middle of that confrontation and I'll just start reading uh, verse 17 through 19. We'll take it from there. It says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore... Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asheron who eat at Jezebel's table. And Stop right there. Here is the opening scene of the confrontation. Elijah and Ahab. uh, Ahab starts the whole conversation by saying to Elijah, the the prophet who's been questioning him, questioning, 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 calling uh, calling out into the light, Ahab and Israel's subsequent disobedience. And Ahab is saying, You troubler of Israel. Elijah fights back and says, Who's the real troubler of Israel? The one who speaks the truth as a matter of speaking? Or the one who leads God's people away from God's word? And this is the opening scene. Elijah starts by saying, Hey, we'll find out. If I can paraphrase it, he says, Who's the real troublemaker? Let's find out now. Let's have a little contest between your God and my God, and let's see who's the one who speaks, specifically uh, uh, with fire. And how do we find out whose God is, is correct or whose God is the, the true and faithful God? And this is where we open up in this scene, of uh, this contest between the both of them. Uh, let's read verse 20 through verse 29. It says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only I am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And stop right there. As so we've been learning over the past day, the temple being the centerpiece of, of God's people. Not because the building has any special significance, but because God's presence was there. Why was it there? Why are we allowed to be in the presence of God? Because blood has been shed, allowing the passing over of sins. People can then enter into the presence of God and not encounter the wrath of God, at least temporarily. And so... Uh, Elijah is is then using this practice. Let's offer a sacrifice to the to to our respective gods and see who responds. Continue reading, verse twenty three. Uh, excuse me, verse twenty four. No, verse twenty three. <laughs> let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put No fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given to them, and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! O Baal, answer us! Answer us! Speak! Speak! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder, for he is a god Either he is musing, or perhaps he is relieving himself. I don't know. Maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep. He must be awakened. Yeah, maybe that's it. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out from them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ab- uh, oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered. No one paid attention. Stop right there. This is, as we, just, as we just saw, a mighty, epic showdown between two apparent gods. Two apparent gods. All they have to do is show up, is to speak and to answer with fire. And there are two, two characters, right? You already see them. Two characters in the story. God and this apparent God, Baal. There's also a third one, and Elijah alludes to this third character all the way at the beginning. He's speaking to Israel. This isn't just a battle between two gods. It's not just a battle between the God of Israel and uh, this uh, 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 apparent God, Baal. It's also a question to Israel. Elijah says, how long will you waver between two different opinions? He's calling on them to make a choice. It's not just a showdown between uh, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God of Baal, the God that the the prophets of Baal served. It's also a call to the people of Israel. How long will you jump between two different sides? It is a proverbial drawing of a line in the sand saying, hey, you either stay on that side or come onto this side, but choose this day whom you will serve. Figure it out now. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus would later say in the Gospel of Matthew. You can either serve the one and hate the other or love the one and hate the other. Choose today who you love. Do you love Baal or do you love the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob? Notice how the false prophets of Baal attempt to interact with their God. They're screaming out. They're crying out, looking for an answer. All day long, they're making a show. They're crying out. They're screaming. They're doing their various uh, uh, rituals. They end up cutting themselves. All day long, they're beseeching Baal to answer. And he doesn't answer. And Elijah's challenge stands at this point. May the real God answer by fire. Now, in ancient times... False gods were often visually represented by what we might call idols, right? And they looked like what many of us would imagine—statues. We talked about this last week and the weeks uh, before that. Statues or graven images carved out of rock and various, uh, uh, various earthly things, and that is, you know, the source of a lot of disconnect between uh, people today. Uh, us speaking of us. Uh, those of us with modern mindsets and things in the Bible that allude to things like idols or false gods. Now, we don't, generally speaking, wake up in the morning and start carving out idols out of our furniture and bow down and worship them, right? Now, there are actually cultures around the world today that still believe in the supernatural, many of whom are superstitious, some that are animistic and they believe in the spiritual realm to a vivid degree and they still have idols that you would see written about in the Old Testament carved out of substances and they to this day bow down and they worship them and they offer sacrifices to them. All over the world this still happens. In the Western world, we've been so steeped in the Enlightenment, in rational thought, that any trace of the supernatural, right, any trace of the spiritual has been stripped from our vernacular. We believe in things that we can touch and feel and see and smell. The spiritual realm has been largely misplaced by what we can uh, figure out uh, through, uh, through empirical evidence. And so when we read things like this, doesn't it confuse some of us? Or maybe not confuse us, but maybe it poses somewhat of a gap to our understanding. Well, I don't, I don't bow down to, to, to idols. I don't have any false gods. I don't worship statues. I'm good. You know, when the Apostle uh, John, in his uh, three letters, at the end of one of his letters, would say to the the church, uh, to to the early church, one of his closing lines in his letters was, and uh, basically, do not worship any idols. Keep yourself from idols. We might read that and say, well, everything up until this point was really relevant to my way of life. You know, all of that stuff about love and God and all of that stuff because I believe he exists, but I don't have a problem with idols. You have to understand. And an idol, an idol, a false god, is universal. And the things that you see in First Kings chapter 18 are simply a visual representation of what it was like in that particular person's heart. For them, they believed in a false god who was represented by, you know, it might be an Asherah pole or a statue or an altar. But it was a visual representation of something that they believed in. And for them, that false god presented salvation. It presented a sense of hope. It presented a sense of security. It presented a sense of well-being and comfort. For many of them, it presented a sense that even though uh, I believe that there's an afterlife, I have no idea how I'm going to fare in the afterlife, this is my way of security. No matter how they lived their life or what it looked like, they could at least trust in this God that they had set up for themselves to bring that added sense of security and hope to them. And it was visually represented by actual statues or idols or altars. Now, we might not have the statues today, but you can bet yourself we've still got the idols, right? Yeah. We might not have little tinker toys or you know, little mantelpieces that we get on our knees and bow down to, but do we look to things today that give us a sense of security? The pastor and theologian Timothy Keller uh, in New York City, famous for saying this, he said, you know, an idol, when you really think about it, is anything that you make ultimate in your life in place of God. And we might even go so far as to think that an idol is a bad thing. You know, we have a list of vices. It's this, and it's this, and it's this, and we should stay away from all of those things. Keller once said, an idol isn't necessarily a bad thing, it's a good thing. Think of money. Think of career. Think of relationships. Think of your children. Think of success. And the list goes on and on and on. Those are good things that God has blessed us with. Keller would go on to say, An idol is a good thing that the human heart has elevated to become an ultimate thing. Whenever we take something that God was meant to bless us, and we elevate it to a place that only God can occupy, that place of security and comfort and hope and ultimately salvation, we have carved, proverbially speaking, We have carved for ourselves an idol in the making. It might not be visual, it might not be tangible, but it is set up in our heart. The uh, the uh, late theologian uh, from Geneva, John Calvin, once said that the human heart is an idol factory. It is able, it has this capacity to turn anything in the person's life into something that it worships. And so when you read in First Kings chapter 18 about false gods and idolatry, you're reading an indictment against all of humanity. Our hearts love to take things that God meant for good and turn them into false gods and idols. And this is the challenge that Elijah is coming up against right now. And what is he saying? What is he saying? And think not just, not just about these literal, uh, literal statues and idols and pillars and altars, but think of your own. And just ask yourself in the, you know, in the stillness of your mind, what, do I, what am I constantly going back to thinking that it's going to get me through the day? Where do I place my final hope? What helps me? What medicates me in times of stress? What helps me sleep at night? What helps me get up in the morning? What gives me that calming effect? Elijah's indictment against all of those things. There was no voice, no one answered. Isn't that true of everything below God that we have, we have elevated to an ultimate thing? They can't speak to you. That's what Elijah is saying in the Word of God. Not just to the prophets of Baal, but to you and to I. Your idols cannot even speak to you. They can't, even reveal the, uh, they can't even reveal the plan of God to you. They can't comfort you. They can't provide security for you. They can give you no lasting hope. They can only tease. In fact, not only are they incompetent to speak to the people that are worshiping them, but they actually heard. Look at this line in verse 26. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from among them. In verse, uh, end of verse 26, as they were crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Isn't there a, a kernel of truth there that resonates with you and I about idols? We think in the back of our minds, if I if I follow this, I'll, I'll be okay. If I do this, if I just get a little bit more of that, if I just have that, I, you know, I have this, but if I were to get that, the grass is always greener, as we as we sometimes say, if I just have that, or if I just get a little of this, or if I could just be over there, or if I could just get my hands on this, and we find ourselves chasing idols, pursuing idols, And have you ever noticed that the longer you pursue a said idol, it begins to eat you up? Maybe you've experienced that yourself. You begin chasing money, thinking that if you just made a little extra next year, it's going to make you happy. It makes you a little bit more depressed than when you started. Your money just continues to grow, but your soul begins to deteriorate. Not that money is bad, remember, good gifts from God. But for those who make such things ultimate, they begin to eat away at our soul. We put all of our hope in our children, living vicariously through them. Oh, if they become successful, if they go to the right schools, if they get a career, if they support me in our old age, if they make us proud, we'll be okay. We do so many different things. There's an endless list of idols we make for ourselves. And the more they disappoint us, the more our soul begins to just fall apart little by little. We just lose a piece of ourselves. Elijah calls this limping. The idols we create for ourselves give us a little bit of a limp. The idols don't just have the inability to speak truth into your life. They, they destroy you. At this point, Elijah stands up and he begins to do what the prophets of the Old Testament love to do, almost comically, begins to mock Baal. And he says it in a variety of ways. He says, hey, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's whispering, you know, he is quite a ways away from where we are. Maybe he's just not loud enough, or, or maybe you're not loud enough. You know, he's a god, but he's probably far away. Maybe if you just shout louder, he can hear you. And he stands back. Perhaps they shouted louder, I don't know. But can you imagine the scene? Elijah's just in the back corner, just jabbing at Baal. Maybe maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's deaf or he has a hearing problem. Maybe he's so old from just being around for so long. You know, ball has so much cultural history and stuff. You know, maybe you just need to yell a little louder. He goes on. Look at some of the stuff he says. <laughs> maybe, he, maybe he is musing. Maybe he's occupied with something else. Maybe he's, he's taking another call. I don't know. Maybe he's on a call with his mother. I, I, I'm now putting words in Elijah's mouth. But to give you a picture of the type of jabs he's giving the, the false prophets, the next one is unbelievable. He then says, perhaps he's relieving himself. The ancient language for relieving himself means relieving himself. It's the same word that we would use. To relieve ourselves. Elijah is literally, I mean, as if they weren't insulted enough that he's calling their God deaf. He then says, maybe he's, he's, he's in the bathroom. I don't know. Does your God go to the bathroom? Maybe he is. He's just going around the loop, just jabbing uh, Baal for being silent and just saying, cry louder, wait a bit. Maybe he needs to come out of the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's on vacation. He's You're getting his uh, an email block right now. It's being sent back to you. Maybe he's sleeping. Does your God sleep? I don't know. Maybe he's tired. He's probably taking a cat nap or a power nap. Who knows? And he goes on and on. Maybe you need to wake him up with your prayers joshing these false prophets of course Elijah knows that this God doesn't exist this God doesn't exist and for that reason he begins to mock this false God he begins to call his authority into question he really just takes on something that the prophets in the Old Testament are very keen on this type of uh, this type of joking satire about idols one of the most famous and most comical, yet also heartbreaking depictions of this is actually in Isaiah. If you can put your thumb where we are now, turn to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 9. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's speaking about, these, uh, he's speaking about idols again. It's a little more lengthy, and right now he's, he's speaking in satire and a little bit of irony, and he's describing the irony and the utter silliness of what it means to make your own God. See if you can pull some of those, some of those things out as Isaiah speaks. It says in verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companion, uh, companions shall be put to shame, and craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. And here it is, here's where it he gets a little bit ironic uh, and adds a little bit of satire in verse twelve. He says, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with the strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. He's speaking about the a human crafting his own God. Strange. Verse thirteen The carpenter stretches a line and he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong and among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and rain nourishes it. Then, verse 15, it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread with it. And then, you know, on the side, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. You see this strange irony coming out. The same person who fashions a god, creates a god for his own, uh, for his own sake, also you know, uses it to cook bread, uses it to warm himself. This, everything that's coming out of this is from the human's hand. This is silliness. How can you worship something that you've created for yourself? Verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats the meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he just happens to make into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Listen to this indictment, verse 18. But they know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I have burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and I have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it into an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The tone and tenor in the pattern of the prophets was to mock idols because they can't do anything. In the same way that Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, that he says also to us today, your idols that you've set up for yourself, they can't help you. They can't even speak to you. In fact, they're destroying you piece by piece, uh, dismantling parts of your soul. In fact, the prophets of Baal, as a closing statement to their God, begin to cut themselves in verse 28, cutting themselves to get their God's attention. Even today, there are people in our community who cut themselves with sharp objects, with razors. I know and speak to people, perhaps you have too, whether it's youth or teenagers, even older people, who have cut, uh, gotten into a practice of cutting themselves. Why? Why? you speak to some of them, you will quickly get a diagnosis that sounds an awful lot like the uh, like the prophets of Baal, because nobody is listening to them because nobody hears their pain, and so they they cut, they medicate, they struggle, they strain in hopes that someone will take notice of what they're going through to know that they are not alone. And yet even then, just as it was thousands of years ago, as if to reinforce the hopelessness of such a situation, uh, the author of of 1 Kings says again, he repeats the same pattern, yet there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. This is the narrative of so many people that we know. This is the story of so many people back at our home in Santa Barbara. This is the, 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 the storyline of so many of your friends and your family and your coworkers. Maybe it's your story. No one is answering. Nobody is meeting me where I'm at. Nobody understands. I feel alone. I feel isolated. I feel hopeless. And since no one is answering our calls, we kill ourselves by chasing any idol we can wrap our heads or our, our hands around. And it might be money, it might be sex, it might be drugs, it might be alcohol, it might be career, it might be subtle things, it might be very tangible things, but we kill ourselves, we dismantle who we have been made in the image of God, piece by piece as our soul becomes emaciated, because instead of satisfying it in the glory of God, we chase after anything that we can see and create with our own hands. That's why the next four words to come perhaps were more comforting to the people listening to them than we realize. Four words out of the mouth of Elijah in verse 30, Come near to me. Some of you need to hear that right now. Come near to me. You need to hear somebody say that. Come near to me. You don't have to be alone. You don't have to be isolated. You don't have to suffer by yourself. And the people came near to Him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And in verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of uh, the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made uh, a trench about the altar as great as would contain two uh, seas of seed. Stop right there. Elijah gathers the people, you can almost imagine his fatherly voice, just come near to me, come near to me, builds an altar and the text tells us that he fashions it out of 12 stones and it says in that verse, 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom uh, a word came to the Lord. I want you to think of two things in relation to the building of this altar, God's promise. Elijah isn't just gathering a bunch of stones just arbitrarily. He's gathering stones to refer the people back to that ancient story. Everywhere you see the prophets speaking, they're always bringing the people's attention, their memory back to the promises of God, referring back whatever it might be to the promise, to a covenant, uh, to the salvation, uh, bringing the people of Israel through the Red Sea out uh, out of Egypt. Whatever it might be, the prophets are always calling the people back to remember, remember. Remember, remember the faithfulness of God. And here is no different. He's causing them to remember God's promises. Hey, you remember that time when God made a promise to uh, to Abraham? talked about this last week and in the weeks prior. God made a promise that he would establish his kingdom and it started off this way. Abraham, I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to make out of you a people. You're going to be in that place as a people under my rule and that's called a kingdom and that's coming your way. And the whole storyline of the Bible is that promise coming to fulfillment. Elijah is simply reminding them about the storyline, saying, Hey, remember the promise? Then he refers to God's calling. He says, Not only, he doesn't doesn't just refer to to the sons of Jacob, but he says, It was to uh, the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. God's promises, I'm going to do something with you. God's calling, I have, I, have, I have called you and beckoned you by name. This isn't Baal who forces us to sacrifice arbitrarily. He doesn't even know who you are, can't even listen to you because he's apparently uh, in the bathroom occupied. This is a God who knows his people by name. doesn't just know them by name but has promised them a future. <clears throat> Elijah then goes on to prove a point. In verse 33 through 35, he begins to fill this trench with water. And I'll just read that section for you. It says, he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Why is he doing this? Well, have you ever tried to light something on fire that was soaked with water? It's really hard. <laughs> Elijah's making a point. If fire comes down, we can be sure that it wasn't, an, uh, it wasn't a parlor trick by the great prophet. It was God speaking. And when God speaks, people aren't confused about who it's, who's doing the speaking. Verse 36 through 40, and this is our last passage. We'll end with this, this section of the scripture. At the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet came near and he prays a prayer. Look you know how short this prayer is? O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and cried out, The Lord, He is God! The Lord Yahweh, He is God! And Elijah said to them, Then seize the prophets of Baal! Let not one of them escape! And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. End of story. God has spoken. God has spoken. God is the one who reveals Himself to His people. He is not silent. He is not occupied. He is not quiet. And compare for a moment Elijah's brief prayer to that of the the prophets of Baal, who cried out, who cut themselves, who did all sorts of different rituals to no avail. Elijah walks up to the prophet, soaks it in water and says a paragraph and fire falls down from heaven. This isn't a God who's far off, who's trying to get you to somehow twist his arm. This is a God who longs to reveal himself to his people, who longs to be known by his people. If I could end with anything for you to bring away from this uh, from this this story this narrative it would be this your false gods whatever they might be they cannot hear you they cannot fix you they cannot make it better they can't comfort you they can't bring you security they can't bring you hope, and they sure, they sure as well can't bring you salvation. They can do nothing but tease you until it's too late. They tease you into submission until your soul is racked with pain. But there is a God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sees you. He hears you, and He cares deeply about where you are and what you're going through. Now, at this point, you might object. You might say, yeah, I've been crying out to that God for years, and I don't see any fire falling down from heaven. If that God did exist, if this is a true story, I would expect that if I were to pray to Him just like Elijah did, I actually did it verbatim, no fire came. I even lit my sofa on fire, and it burned me wasn't God. You know, we, ask, we say these things. Well, Why doesn't He reveal Himself to me like Elijah? How come He won't be? I'm in the midst of all of this suffering. Why won't He say something? Where's the fire? Where's the fire, God? Here's something about the Bible. From start to finish, there is a progressive revealing of the heart of God. It starts in one place, and it progressively gets deeper. We get a little more uh, we get a, a little deeper vignette into the face of God as it goes further. Now, we got a vignette of that in 1 Kings chapter 18. In Elijah's day, the way that God revealed Himself to everyone listening, fire falls from heaven. But in this generation, according to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2, the deepest form of revelation, deeper than all the prophets combined, is not fire from heaven, but God's Son being revealed from heaven. Elijah revealed the heart of God by sending fire from heaven. But in this generation, he sends not fire, but his son. In Elijah's day, fire burned, the sacrifice, the offering that was on the altar. But in our day, Christ himself was the sacrifice that was burned by the uh, the wrath, the fire of God on our behalf. And it's because of this Christ, it's because of this greater Elijah that we can come into the presence of God free of charge, to worship at his feet. And in this story, God makes a statement. The same God who can silence false gods and idols comes not as Baal, not as the Roman conquerors, not as Alexander the Great, not as Herod the Great, not as the Assyrians, not as the Greeks, not as any of the empires who came with the sword. This God who can who can collapse empires and silence false gods comes as a servant to give his life for his enemies that's why when jesus in the sermon on the mount tells his people how to pray he says some things and i want to end with this passage and then we'll go into a time of worship together. I pray that as we do, we would have in our vision this scene of God in all of His authority and power. The Almighty God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who is unparalleled in His authority and power and yet who condescends to our level and says, I hear you. I'm not too busy. I hear you. Speak to me. And how are we to speak to this God? God who's more powerful than all the gods that the mythologies speak of, all of the empires that arose and fell and were passed by in history, everyone who has ever tried to make a name for themselves, this God who thunders over all of them. How do we speak to such a person? Jesus says this. You can almost hear him chuckle as he tells people this. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 6. We went through this when we went through our series in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 13 something that sounds eerily familiar to what we just saw in the scene in 1 Kings chapter 18 says hey you guys when you pray don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him he knows you by name. He's your dad. Pray instead like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. He knows you. Just talk to Him. We're going to spend a just a, a little bit of time together in worship. And as we do, you know how we do it as a church. You can stay where you're sit, uh, seated. You can go off somewhere uh, in a place of solitude. There's a lot of places to to walk around and be with the Lord. You can turn to someone and pray. You can get on your face. You can do any of those things. But I want to stop us just for, just for a minute. We've been going through so much together as a church. So much information. A lot of information just right here as we were reading in 1 Kings 18. Just want us to stop for a moment and let God speak. Whatever you got to do to put yourself in that zone, you know what I mean? Put yourself in that space. Do it. We're not in a rush today. We're in the shade. It's getting a little cooler, I think. We're in the presence of God, not because we found the temple, not because we have uh, 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 a certain array of priests. It's because Jesus is with us and in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He's here right now. Let's stop ourselves for a moment and reflect this God who can silence false gods comes as a servant to give His life for you and He says, I want to talk to you. And You don't got to thrill me with your fancy words. You don't got to beg and go through all sorts of rituals. Just, just, just speak. And you know what? I'll speak back. Perhaps as He reveals Himself to you, remember some of the ways that He's been faithful in your life. What we then can do Just turn all of that stuff back into praise and it would be awesome to come back together if we're not here already, just together as a church. Just worship the Lord as we sing and proclaim about our God. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for revealing Yourself and not just to the prophet Elijah, not just to the people of Israel thousands of years ago, but still, to many believers who have been grafted into the, uh, into the vine. God, we believe that you are the one true God and there was no one like you. And I pray that there would be two things that would happen right now, that we would simultaneously recognize that there is no one like you and at the same time realize that you are the only one who can supply that thing in our hearts, that, that missing piece that we've been longing for all of these years. I pray that two things would happen. Satisfaction in the deepest part of who we are because we have met the one that we have been longing for our entire lives and worship because we have seen your glory and we cannot even bear to stand it. May you simultaneously uh, uh, satisfy our deepest longings but also open our eyes, our lips, our hands, get us on our knees and open up our hearts to sing your praise. That on this little mountaintop, back in Santa Barbara, in that little theater, we would begin to declare your praise that there is nobody like you. And may you be known in all the nations as the God who saves. Praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.